for 11 years in a row, ranking Arizona's number one most trusted referral network, rosieonthehouse.com. Information that you can't get anywhere else. And over three decades of Rosie on the House. Bringing y'all back into my house here at Rosie on the House. Thank you for joining us here this Saturday morning. As any of you who are regular listeners of the show know, I'm a I'm a passionate historian and lover of this great state of Arizona. And Phoenix has recently, just now, celebrating its 150th anniversary. So we reached back to our contacts and found Mr. Steve Schumacher, who is a Phoenix historian and educator, to join us this morning and talk a little bit about the 150th anniversary of Phoenix. Steve, thank you for joining us. Oh, gosh, my pleasure, Rosie. I, I just thoroughly enjoy the show, and the opportunity to be on and talk about one of my own passions, Phoenix history, is just a delight. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So if we're marking this as the 150th, what what day are we using to start that, 150 years ago? What was the event? Well, what happened, um, it was October 26th of 1870, and uh, up until that point, there had been, uh, Phoenix was growing as more, I can't say really a town or a city, it was just more of a, a community of farmers and miners and that kind of thing, and um, they got to the point where they realized there was a lot of benefit in forming a town, and so uh, there was a couple attempts to do it. A few uh, uh, areas were surveyed, but it got to the point where they needed to make some decisions because there was actually three different locations were vying for the becoming the town site, and so there was a gathering of all the farmers in the area, as many as could attend, and they selected a committee of three men to uh, figure out what would be the best location for the town site. And they came back a week later, which was October 26th, and they said, this is our best guess. This is what would be the best location for the town of Phoenix, which is what we know today as downtown really old downtown. Do we know what the other two locations they were even considering? Yeah, you know, we really do. It's it's interesting because, of course, being a historian, I go down those rabbit holes and dig, them, <laughs> dig into them. And yeah. so it's just an afterthought for me, these different things. But yeah, the first location uh, was out around about 36th Street in Washington, just north of the airport. Um, uh, Jack Swilling, who really, in most people's minds, started the first ditch, he had a big house there, he had a big property just north of there. There was a guy named Helling who had a huge flour mill, and so they really wanted the town to be there. And then there was a couple guys, a guy named McKinney and another guy named Carpenter, who had a saloon and a little general store over in the area of where St. Luke's Hospital is, and okay. they wanted it there. <laughs> and then the committee came back and said, well, those locations are, those guys already own pretty much all that property. We want a fair shot at it. And so they came up with the location, which ended up being the town site, which was bounded by Van Buren on the north, Harrison on the south, which is really the railroad track now. Yes, yeah. 
and then 7th Avenue on the west and 7th Street on the east. And that's, that's what won out. That's what got the vote. And do we have an idea of what the general population of the area was at that time? Well, for some of the uh, the initial meetings, there was really only about 50 farmers in the area. But by the time they got to 1870, people were coming from Wickenburg and, and Prescott and so forth to try to plant crops and make money and so forth. But there was in the neighborhood of probably about 200, maybe 250 farmers in the area that were involved in the initial voting and the, and the uh the official designation of the town site. One of the most mind-bending historical facts I have of the of really the Salt Valley, the whole the whole Valley of the Sun, is when I tour Pueblo Grande Museum. Oh, right, yeah. And 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 they talk about the fact that at one time this valley could have possibly, from Buckeye to Gold Canyon supported about 250,000 Native Americans in small adobe settlements all along the river. I mean, that that's with no modern transportation. That's with no <laughs> public <laughs> utilities. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty much the case that wherever you walk around the Salt River Valley, everywhere from probably the, the power, nuclear power plant way out west all the way to the Superstition Mountains and north, South, you're walking on pretty sacred Hohokam grounds, really, pretty much everywhere you walk. And the first canals that were dug, they weren't dug just, uh, you know, originally, they were old Hohokam canals that had been put to use for those 200, 250,000 Hohokam many years ago. So um, the Anglos who came in from Wickenburg, Jack Swilling, and those kinds of folks, they just picked up where the Hohokam left off. So these farmers get together, these three committee men get together and decide, okay, we're going to stake out what will become the center of this new town. Did they call it Phoenix then? When did Phoenix get its name? Oh, wow, really good question. You know, originally, and, and, and me, me as a historian, I like to envision some of these things. There is one story, I don't know if it's true or not, that Several of the original pioneers, Jack Swilling, Daryl Dupa was a guy who was credited with giving Phoenix its name and so forth. They said that they were sitting around on some of the old Hohokam ruins. I like to think it was Pueblo Grande. That just creates my little vision yeah, yeah. for me. And they're sitting around drinking whiskey, trying to figure out a name. But they had uh, Jack Swilling had been part of the Confederate Army, so he wanted Stonewall. They even threw out Pumpkinville, um, uh, Millville. There was various names, and then as the story goes, either Jack Swilling or Del Dupa had a had an old little pocket dictionary of some kind, and they looked through there and they saw the name Phoenix, which was a, a bird rising from the ashes, and they thought, well, this is like a whole palm settlement that is rising again from the ashes and so they actually had put the name phoenix settlement on that original location i told you out about 36th wow. street and okay. that was actually called the phoenix settlement it was a post office jack swilling was the first postmaster and so forth so when the original town site was finally officially designated they just took that original phoenix name and laid it onto the, that town site so, Steve, 
being in real estate my whole life, the early settlers come in and they lay their claim. And then these three committee men say, well, you know, here, here's enough available property to stake out a downtown. Who gets first title to the first <laughs> lot? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's another really good question. I don't know if it was it was drawn from a hat or whatever. As it turns out, the guy that bought the very first lot, which if you know anything about downtown, the direction so forth, it was on the let's see the southwest corner of First Street in Washington. That was the first lot that was sold. And it sold for about $103. And the guy who bought it was a judge from Prescott. His name was Judge Barry. And as it turned out, he had some political connections with uh, President Grant and so forth to get all the approvals and so forth. So it turned out to be a pretty fortuitous uh, um, event to have this Judge Barry from Prescott buy the first lot and then pave the way for the others. Now, y'all just last Monday had a little formal celebration for the 150th anniversary. What did y'all have going on to celebrate that? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was just amazing. Again, some of these things uh, um, that I come up with, these ideas or things I find in in my research, when I see them come to fruition, it just is amazing. So, it was about a year ago I, I went and spoke to the uh, Phoenix City Council and the mayor, and I said, uh, in about a year, we've got a pretty special anniversary. And so interest was generated. There were some groups that were put together to work on a celebration, and it actually happened past Monday. And unfortunately, with the virus, we could only have about 50 people, but the mayor was there, city council members spoke, um, I gave a few words about my interest and how this came about from a historian perspective. And they had a big banner uh, talking about the 150th anniversary. And it was just it was just an incredible event. Uh, it only took about 30 minutes. And um, but I just was shaking my head a couple of times just thinking, oh, my gosh, I finally got the attention of the decision makers in town to really celebrate a big piece of our history. Well, you know, Phoenix has raised itself in prominence from that humble beginning uh, atop the Hohokam ruins to being one of the largest cities in the country now. I mean, I, I, I got here in 66, and it was, a nice, it was a nice town back then, you know. Uh, right. I, I call it a big city now. But Phoenix, is, <laughs> Phoenix in Arizona has been good to us. People apparently still love it. We're one of the fastest-growing cities in the entire country. And... Uh, Thanks to you, Steve Schumacher, Phoenix historian and educator, for bringing us full circle to let us try and look back on on where this rising bird has come from. Oh gosh, thank you so much, Rosie. I this is um, this is just a personal passion for me. I uh, my main purpose in doing this is really to 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 plant some seeds in the minds of our citizens and especially our young people. So when they get older and they become adults and become decision makers in the Valley, we'll, they will for, for sure value our history and heritage and act accordingly. And it seems to me, in my personal experience of life, those that appreciate history have a better attitude of gratitude for where we currently are 
and are currently going. So for your efforts in continuing that, I want to thank you, Steve Schumacher, a million, for joining us here at Rosie on the House. Thank you so much, Rosie. I appreciate the opportunity. like finding reasons to get outside. I really like to find reasons to get outside with my children and my grandchildren. We've been geocachers for a long time. We've been bird watching and bird watchers for a long time. We love to hike. But don't stop taking your kids and grandkids outside once the sun falls below the horizon because you're missing a huge opportunity to explore a whole new dimension. Let's welcome Dr. Sky to the show. And good morning, Rosie. Good to be in the house on Rosie on the House. Thank we've you. we've kind of walked into this topic by covering the, the subject of lighting in, about, and around your house. Someone said, well, when you're talking about outside lighting, you better address the dark sky outside lighting and the responsibility we all have to protect our dark sky. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so um, what have you been up to? I know y'all do some night sky watching it. What we try to do, our whole Dr. Sky company, is try to offer some positivity in these rather depressing COVID times. And I know you've probably covered it, but I'll say it proudly on, on your show. You know, what better way to get out of the doldrums than to take your family oh. and spend the time to look at our cherished skies that we have here and Obviously, Rosie, I'm not going to go into all the details. I think that's from your side and your previous guests on how to prevent the glare, which causes the sky glow, which obviously many locations in Arizona have been declared by the International Dark Sky Association to be these very dark sky places, whether they be parks, reserves, or communities. Obviously, this is what people tell us they like so much. So for 10 years, we've been providing what to see in the nighttime. Yes, Rosie. yes. It's the planet Mars, sometimes referred to by many as the god of war. But regardless of how you look at it, throughout history, so many people have looked to Mars and look at all the spacecraft that are headed there, America's Perseverance, with the first helicopter-type uh, little robotic craft, uh, this little drone, Ingenuity. It's headed there, <laughs> get there in February. But really, we're looking at Mars some 38 million miles away. But in moderate-sized telescopes, we've been showing people, and people can do this, and maybe some of the listeners out there do have the equipment, and they're already doing it. What are they seeing? They're seeing the shrinking southern polar cap on Mars. They're seeing so many of the so-called land features, potential dust storms that are brewing up, and some of the giant volcanoes. You can actually see the cloud tops over these volcanoes in a rather large, sophisticated telescope. But the important part, Rosie, is Mars is the center stage. And it's doing something rather funky in the sky as far as planets do. We know that the astrology community is tied closely to the astronomy community, at least sometimes. But right now, folks, Mars is going through its retrograde time. And, Rosie, think of all the craziness that's going on in the world, and people always talk about retrograde. So something's going on there if you're into the astrology side. That started on September the 9th, and it ends by November the 14th. But... If you could jump on a light beam with me, Rosie, and the listeners, we could get to Mars in about three minutes and 30 seconds. But I'll take the beautiful view with the naked eye and share that because it's something that's going to get better. And we'll be doing a lot of things around the valley in the state, not only with that, but so many of the other things. But it's really one of the most highlighted objects uh, and event. Don't forget that really strange and funky moon on Halloween night, Rosie. We get the second full moon. Oh, we do. 
Oh, yeah. We get okay. to see a, since, since 1944, I've checked this, we have not had a full full moon, meaning 100% full, on Halloween night since 1944, and it probably <laughs> won't happen again since 2035. And I already, I already know where I'm going to be Halloween night. I'm going to be camping ah. with all my grandsons out in the middle of the desert just south of Payson. So I'll wow. have... The- with all the good things in Arizona, what we're trying to do, Rosie, is show you how to use equipment how to step outside of doors, go and enjoy the nighttime sky. You don't really have to always travel far. There's so many wonderful places here in Arizona and the rich history of astronomy here. But I mention this in passing because I'm so proud of the fact that during my college days, again, Clyde Tombaugh, the discoverer of the then planet Pluto, now the dwarf, got to know him and his family so well, Rosie. And boy, I'll tell you, that was not only a shot in the pants to to continue to study this very, very good subject, but What an amazing story that I'm sure will be told once again by the good folks at the Lowell Observatory that, of course, Percival Lowell, the director, founded way back when, and the great story of Dr. Tombaugh. But they're right. You know, Dr. Hall was saying it, and I heard it very clearly. America's planet, obviously, the planet Pluto or the dwarf planet back on February 18th, 1930. Well, in talking to the Arizona homeowners whose attention you now have, what kind of equipment could a family purchase and have a reasonably good astronomical experience in their backyard. With limited budgets right now, this is my personal Dr. Sky opinion, these small, simple-to-use Dobsonian, just remember the term Dobsonian, in namesake of the astronomer who did this on sidewalks in San Francisco, uh, John Dobson, the Dobsonian design, is just the basic telescope. It looks like something if you remember back during the days when kids built the soapbox derby cars, you know, had a sure. little wood crates. These are functional telescopes. They're reflectors. Just remember Dobsonian. If you get a 6-inch or even an 8-inch, they don't have all the computer technology behind it. And why am I? I'm not, a, you know, I'm not negative on that. For the very beginner who has maybe a pair of binoculars and wants to move forward, these yes. little Dobsonians are just great. They're a little on the large side. You know, you can take them apart and just have somebody help you carry the base because it's just wood. You're always yeah. such a joy to have on the show. We really appreciate you taking the Thank time. You. Real oh. quick, uh, we've got a text message that wants to know, what's your favorite astronomy phone app for learning? Now, you've got to have one. Yeah, there is one. I love one called The Planets. Just go to that one, which is a really simple one. It gives you a basic nighttime sky, and it gives you the three-dimensional view of the universe. So just go to The Planets. You'll see it, of course, up there, wherever good apps are found at all these app stores. Thank you for sticking with us here at Rosie on the House. It is Saturday morning. Our 9 o'clock hour is generally our on-the-house hour, where we spend the whole hour with a local expert, tradesman, talking about something specifically on your home, castle, or cabin. But, you know, when you get holiday weekends and you don't want to interrupt people's family schedule and our... uh, our article, our On the House article this week, if you get our weekly email newsletter, talks about hanging things. Uh, you can sign up for that at rosieonthehouse.com. We just email you once a week, kind of a preview to what comes up in Saturday's broadcast with a link to our article. And it's just all the different ways and tools and mechanical uh, fasteners that are available on the market for hanging uh, pictures, artwork, on your walls and most of the walls in our current homes uh, probably I'm gonna say late 70s early 80s and Ford is all 
drywall board. And drywall is a gypsum-based product. It's a, it's a rock that's mineral mined out of the ground. A lot of it comes out of Nevada. There's a big, uh, big distribution yard. And the boards are generally in uh, four by eight sheets. Some of them are four by 12. You really don't see those much in residential. You see a lot more in commercial applications. It helps them move the job a lot quicker when they're doing a big office building as opposed to the inside of a residential area. But they're generally speaking four by eight. And you've got to be careful when you move them. You couldn't pick them up like a regular piece of plywood that's flat where you've got picture two people on each side. And if you're walking, the weight can actually crack very easily. Uh, So you've got to carry it more vertically upright. That gypsum board really is just paper on both sides of the front and the back. When you hang it in bathrooms, it's a green color. It's got more water-resistant material added to it for around your shower surrounds. But in most cases, on most new homes, that's what you're uh, drilling into to hang your artwork. In a lot of cases, it's just simply not strong enough but you're going to need to find a stud in a lot of cases, and that's the vertical wood plank. And again, in a lot of cases, it's two by four. Some cases, it's two by six. And and the downside to hanging a picture in a room perfectly, you want it at that site. There may not be a stud. There never is a stud. There, I mean, it, 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 it ne- and it always never fails. There is never a stud where this is where I want to put it, and you're stuck with drywall. Now, depending on the weight of the photo or the picture or the frame you can still get away with it. I mean, if it's a light picture, but if it's something that weighs 100 pounds, that's, work. that's not going to work. That's when you got to get your mechanical anchors in. And a lot of those mechanical anchors are plastic, and that's okay because that's strong enough for most of what you're going to be hanging. I'm not a big plastic fan myself, but we've all seen them. You know exactly what we're talking about. It's a little round uh, threadless screw is what it looks like, but it's got a couple threads on each side because when you when you put it into the drywall and then you then insert the screw, that screw forces that plastic out to expand and it puts pressure on the drywall creating additional friction. You don't want to break that plastic anchor when you're putting it in the drywall. Depending on how big of an anchor you're, you're working with, uh, sometimes you can get like a 16-pitty nail. Once you've got the exact placement of where you would like to punch the hole, you can pound that nail in and pull it out and then put the anchor in. Well, if it's a bigger anchor, that hole's not going to be big enough. Well, you don't want to force it because if you crack that plastic going in, you're going to break the structural integrity that it's designed to have. How many of you out there have broken two or three of those things before you finally got it in into the wall? <laughs> I'm raising my hand. It may take a few slam doors yes. before it rattles out. <laughs> whatever the case may be, but pre-drill those holes uh, on those plastic anchors. They're uh, they're just called screw-in drywall anchors, a plastics, expanding plastic sleeve. Moving up to a heavier load, you've got butterfly anchors. Uh, they're also called toggle bolts, and that's actually what we named them in the article. You'll need a bigger hole for that because you've got to get the mechanical part all the way through, and once that's pushed through the wall, it's on a spring. It's two arms, and they expand out so that when you put the screw in, it pulls tight against the drywall. Like, you know, picture it being two extra hands on the back of the drywall that are adding to the extra structural support. Those are, are uh, you know, for, for your heavier workloads. 
And we also talk in the article about different adhesive strips or glue-on hooks for your super light loads, but not a big fan of those overall. If it's light enough of an item that you're trying to hang, you can cover those little tiny puncture holes really well. In a lot of cases, just toothpaste. If it's on a white wall with orange peel, toothpaste can hide those. Where if you're using the glue strips and it comes off, it always leaves some part of the adhesive and it's a much bigger eyesore that's harder to patch up. So they do exist, but uh, generally speaking, not not a big fan of those. And you can get the entire article at rosyonthehouse.com in our blog. We have a different article every single week about something specifically on your home, castle, or cabin. Absolutely. I'm asked all the time, uh, as far as choosing a contractor, is we're bound by law uh, to pull permits when required. We're seeing a lot of people ignoring the permitting process, just blowing right past it. If your contractor at your house talking to you about your project isn't talking to you about pulling a permit, isn't talking to you, we have to, by law, according to when your home was built, test for lead and or asbestos. If they aren't testing your home for lead and or asbestos, they're not abiding by the law. They're cutting corners. If they're not pulling permits, they're cutting corners. So if they'll cut corners there, and that's their, in their DNA, what's going to keep them from cutting corners on the entire project? So that's one of the questions, trick questions you can have when you're interviewing a remodeling contractor. When you've interviewed two or three of them and you've got it narrowed down to the one who always showed up on time and the one who was always prepared with what he or she said they'd have ready for you to review, and they weren't making excuses on why they couldn't get there or why they couldn't finish the drawing or why they couldn't finish the preliminary estimate, just before you select them, ask them, who's going to pull my permit? And you, you as the homeowner want the permit. It's in your interest to have the permit in the contractor's name, okay? And then you also want to ask, does my house require asbestos testing? Does my house require lead testing? And if they look at you like a deer in headlights, you now know you've asked all the right questions and you can confirm in your head and your heart that you have the wrong person at your house you're interviewing for the job. Okay, there's some great trick questions on how to keep you safe. If they're not tending to these details up front, they aren't going to tend to the details once you sign that contract. And we hear stories all the time about jobs that go over budget and go over schedule. It's because somebody's not paying attention to the details. So I'm about ready to go off. And I'm so tired of <laughs> taking phone calls at the office. Well, we didn't use a Rosie certified contractor, but we sure got problems, and we want you to come rescue us. I did just have a lady call in, and she was wanting to know if she should use a contractor. She wanted to get some work done, and um, their 
license was expired. And I asked her why she didn't just use ours, because we do more than just check a license. We check their credit, their history, their bank, their last customers, last 20 customers. So we do a lot more depth, in-depth research than you can by yourself. And then you got Rosie on your side, too. And, and you've got to ask, why was the license expired? Um, during the Great Recession, contractors quit getting notices. I mean, historically, we always got notices. Your license is due to renew in 60 days. And so it kind of triggered you could take care of it. Well, those notices quit. So I will say this. A lot of good contractors through the Great Recession had little bitty periods of time where their, <laughs> their license was suspended for, not, for non-renewal. We have had an uptick in that because for that yes. very reason. And they just and they thank us when we call them. She asked if it was okay to call them and ask them. I said, yeah. absolutely. You know, it was the holidays for one thing and then not getting the notices. And the other trick question is you could have a current license but have an expired liability insurance policy. So you want to know from their insurance provider. Don't don't ask them to provide it. You want their insurance broker to give you an insurance certificate that shows that the policy ends three months, at least three months after your job is supposed to be finished. And then you've got then you got to ask them about course of construction insurance. That's something that's never talked about. Uh, so expensive to be in business. It's uh, and and to legally be in business, I should say. Amen. And one other thing on expired licenses, you don't see this as much anymore. But when they started going away from having a uh, you know a specialty residential electrical license and a specialty commercial, you could get a dual, so you wouldn't have to have two licenses. One license would cover your residential and commercial. Electricity works the same. <laughs> Plumbing works the same. <laughs> uh, trim carpentry works you, you can, the same. You can get involved in higher amperage and wattage commercially, but it all works the same. So you may in, end up in a case where you let your residential and commercial license go because to get a dual residential commercial license, it's a different number. So they may have let their old ones expire because they have a new dual purpose license. So just checking. You know, when, when you see that, there's no alarm. They're just cutting their costs by going to a dual license and having one instead of paying for two licenses. Now, if the company you're considering, you can go to the Registrar Contractors website and plug in their name and see how many licenses they've been the qualifying party for. And I would tell you that if it looks like they're going through a, a license about every five or six years, it might be a cause for concern. And these are all safety questions you need to deal with before you hire a contractor. And the red flag you're looking for there is is the company name changing every five years because, you know, they go in business, they go out of business, then they just start a new company under a different name and get a different license. And again, those records are still kept online about all those previous companies uh, through the register of contractors. That's right. So that's, that's your alarming point there is maybe this isn't somebody that's capable of staying in business any longer than four or five years before you know all the the snowball effect kicks in of 
you know, getting this job sold and you're using the down payment for the Johnsons to finish the Howard's job over here at this other residence because you over budgeted it and they're not going to pay any more for the over budget aspect. So to finish the job, you're taking down payment from this customer to finish this job on this other residence. And that we see that, or, you know, he's got to pay the big note on the boat he bought last week (laughs) because he thought he was going to close a half a million dollar job that didn't come through. And he got that big deposit check on the big job. And he hadn't gotten any bills on that job yet. So he looks at his bank account and he sees this huge, ginormous amount of money in there and figures a boat's a good way to do it. It's kind of the uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul principle. That is, exactly. Let's see if we bring Pat in from Scottsdale. All right. My plumbing, and I listened to you for years and years, and um, first time that I've actually had to call you. Okay, so we've had about five homes in Arizona, but uh, the last two were built in 94, 96 period. And none of them could get hot water to the sink in the kitchen. We had to do aftermark fix with, I think it was a Grundy pump on the last one. And now this one we, we bought and we've been in six months and same problem, but didn't know that that was the problem. We thought the water tank was failing. So the plumber who came out and quoted us, Said it would cost about seven hundred to fix electric uh, water heater to get water to, so we're not wasting gallons and gallons. What is your view on this stuff, and, and the, what's the and, modern approach? <laughs> and that seven hundred was for a small undercounter heater that would fit under the sink and feed you well, instant water. Well, my thought was he was going to mount it on the water tank like the last guy did. Oh, so he was just going to put a circulating pump there yeah and 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 that is probably one of your most cost effective less obtrusive tactics for accomplishing what you want to do uh and we mount those on a timer we have traditionally used the same thing you've used pat the grunfoss from germany it comes with a thermocoupler uh, at the one sink where you want the hot water and it senses and the, the pump turns on until that thermocoupler is satisfied, then it shuts off. I, I tell people, depending on the size of run that is, you may want to put a timer on that pump so it isn't running all the time. You're generally using hot water at the kitchen sink at breakfast and supper. Turn the circulation pump on an hour in the morning before you want the hot water and turn it off in the mid-morning. And again, before you want it at supper time and off after you would typically retire for bed. Grunfoss really is the one that we've been used primarily. But I will tell you this, that there is one that I discovered at the Kitchen and Bath Show that's actually made in America uh, that's been around for 40 years that I've said, uh, just for the fact that it's made in America, that's going to be the next one I try. And it's a little bit simpler system than the Grunfoss system. Uh but let me let me see uh, if if we can't get this particular system engineered for your home on a trial basis. I'm going to give you a call, and we'll, we'll take it from. I will personally take it from there, Pat. I'll give you a call, and we'll see if we can't get this alternative made in America product installed at your house, and then you can be our 
our beta tester, and you can let us know. Let me go to Hector, calling from Santan, see if I can help him with the project he's trying to tackle. Hector, good morning. Yes, good morning, Rosie. Awesome show, by the way. My wife had a, um, a request. We have a, the side of the house where I used to put the trash can that's a dirt area. It's mm-hmm. about three and a half feet wide, 50 feet long. The garage lead, has a door that leads into it. She wants me to build a doggy door in one of the rooms to lead out there, fence up that area so that's where the dogs can use the restroom and have their little area instead of using the whole backyard. Great. That. I was just wondering, is that a good place? Because I don't want the smell as bad as it does when it rains, the smell kind of, I don't know, multiplies. It does. The, it does. The, well, it was, I was just wondering if there's any steps or anything I should do to get that process started to make sure it's a good little home for them. All right. Well, I, I have found in my experience that wife requests become life's realities. Okay. So you are going to build this dog compound. Here's a couple things. In the doggy door that you install, make sure it goes into an area that can be locked, that someone can't use the doggy door to enter your house. If it's a laundry room door and the house is empty all day while you're at work, put a deadbolt on the laundry room door that you lock from the inside of the house. And the dogs are free to come and go, get out of the heat and the cold, have a bed in the laundry room, their water and food bowl, but they'll go outside to do their business. Other than that, all you can do is get in a rigorous protocol of picking up to keep the smell from getting bad. And I can tell you that in uh, we, we raise German short hairs. Uh, we have two down, an English pointer. Uh, it helps a lot. Uh, we have a kennel in the back, a corner of the, of the yard. We, we don't put them on concrete. We put them on pea gravel so that everything that they emit from their body percolates into the ground. I hose it down regularly. And I'll tell you another thing. In the doghouse, in that kennel, I use cedar saw chips that you can buy in bulk. And that goes a long way to eliminating any of that dog aroma. So there's a couple tips for creating that dog area. They'll appreciate it. Your wife will appreciate it. And uh, I want... I want pictures of when it's done. But the one thing about doggy access, make sure it only goes in to a secure, locked area of your home. A good, strong, one-inch throw deadbolt mounted on that door, accessible and lockable from the outside. So you get in that room, you actually need a key to get out of that room. They can rob all the dirty underwear and socks and laundry soap they want. Uh, lavender, uh, fabric softener and all that, but uh, they can't get in to your master bedroom where the family you know, heirlooms are. Okay? There you go, Hector. I hope that helped.